0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. More than 80% of the world's population consumes the same psychostimulant every single day, yet few of us know very much about our favorite daily drug, caffeine. My guest today will shed some light on humanity's love affair with this pick-me-up substance. His name is Murray Carpenter, and he's the author of Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us. We begin our discussion exploring what caffeine does to our mind and body before delving into how caffeine consumption developed in different places all around the world and how the way we get our caffeine fix has evolved over the millennia. Murray and I then discuss the popularity of coffee in America and how our grandparents actually drank way more coffee than we do today. Murray explains how caffeinated sodas became a stimulating competitor to coffee in the 19th century and how energy drinks became a huge business in the late 20th century. Murray and I then discuss how you're probably ingesting more caffeine than you realize and what the generally recommended maximum amount to consume per day is. We then get into whether caffeine can enhance athletic performance and how much you need to take for it to make a difference. We then discuss the overlooked benefits of caffeine as well as its downsides and we end our conversation with the question of whether caffeine is an addictive substance, this episode will get you thinking about your morning joke differently. After the show's over, check out our show notes at slash All
1: right, Murray Carpenter, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for your interest in, in caffeine.
0: So yeah, a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, you published a book called Caffeinated how our daily habit helps hurts and hooks us so what's the story behind this book you were just you had a caffeine
1: habit and you want to explore why do i drink coffee every morning yeah i mean that, that that's the nut of it i've been a caffeine drinker for decades and and i've been intrigued by it you know the the idea that most of us do consume caffeine daily and yet we don't think of it as a drug and, and so that was sort of my point of entry is you know what is it about this substance that, that makes us makes us want to consume it to drink coffee every day so let's talk about okay. What is caffeine? So it, it it is it a drug? It is a drug by any standard. Yeah, it's it's a drug. It's it's a simple drug. It's it's an alkaloid. It's a, a compound that emerged independently in many different plants all over the world. And so wherever caffeine seems to have evolved, humans seem to have figured out how to put it to use for their own purposes. So let's
0: broadly speaking, because we'll get in the details of what caffeine does to our minds and bodies, but broadly speaking, what, what do we know that, that caffeine does to our physiology and even our,
1: our minds? Well, it's primary mechanism is very, very simple. There's a neurotransmitter called adenosine. And in broadest terms, what this does is lets us know that we're tired and Caffeine looks remarkably like adenosine and is able to sit in the receptors for adenosine and basically nudge them aside and not you know not let adenosine sit there and um, you know it's, it's like it's sitting at the bar stool and adenosine has to walk away. And so you know it's this simple trick of sort of of pushing adenosine aside that, allows caffeine to work the magic we know so well, which is basically to make us feel, you know, a, a little bit more stimulated, a little bit more energetic.
0: So that's interesting. So like the caffeine itself isn't giving us energy. It's just blocking a neurotransmitter that makes us feel tired and we don't feel tired. Yeah. Yeah. That
1: would that would be the simplest way to look at it. Yeah.
0: Okay. And besides blocking that neurotransmitter,
1: any other effects that it has on our brain chemistry or physiology? You know, there are some more subtle things. It may enhance a calcium pump in that's in muscles that might subtly enhance your muscle strength but you know by and large that that's the principal mechanism for which it's known and loved is is it's effect it, it, it's a relationship with adenosine
0: okay so you you talked about that this is it's a substance that's all it's natural it's found all around the world do we know when human beings figured out that if they you know ate a leaf or drink ate a nut that they would have this boost of energy from caffeine?
1: We, we have a pretty good sense that, that is, well, we know it's been going on for thousands of years, at least. And I visited the place that we have the, the earliest known, the, the earliest evidence of human use of caffeine. And that's in a part of uh, what's now Mexico in, in Chiapas. And basically there were, there were people there who were consuming cacao, who were consuming chocolatey drinks 3000 years ago. And so archaeologists have been able to you know extract or or find the caffeine in the residue of these chocolatey drinks 3000 years ago. So we know that you know back then people were cultivating cacao, a caffeinated product and they were consuming it. And so we we know that that was going on 3000 years ago. Around the same time it looks like tea culture probably emerged in China, you know by folklore the Chinese tea culture might be as old as five thousand years, but it seems to have been, you know, around three thousand years ago that that started happening. So, you know, those are some of the earliest indications that, that people were using caffeine.
0: So this is interesting because, like, this, these are independent discoveries, like multiple discoveries, like human beings just dis- disparate groups figured this out on their own without any connection to each other.
1: And that to me is one of the most fascinating things. Yeah, because we haven't even talked about coffee. Which, which all was another independent discovery, but you know, much later, maybe only as recent as a thousand years ago, that people in Africa and northern Africa were starting to then chew the coffee bean and eventually started to roast it and and develop it into the beverage we we know now. But yeah, there. And additionally, in in North America, there were uh, Native Americans who were consuming in tea form, yopon holly, which is also caffeinated. So yeah it, it is odd because yeah I, I think it's it's hard for us to imagine people sort of wandering around doing uh, amateur ethnobotany right like hey I wonder if I chew on this what it'll do to me but yeah people did it and they figured it out. Yeah people have been looking for like I mean
0: I guess being a human is is tiring it's exhausting So we've been looking for something to to help us out
1: with that for for thousands of years. Yeah I think I think that's part of it and and it, and I think, and, and we can talk about this more, but it's, it. I think one of the underestimated aspects of caffeine is it, it's not just a stimulant, right? It, we, we know it for its stimulant effects, particularly at higher doses, but at lower doses, it, it, it has a much more subtle and, and yet I think a very significant effect. It just makes you feel good. And so, you know, I think that's part of the appeal uh, all over the world.
0: So let's talk about different ways we get caffeine. So we've talked about three ways already. So in, in Mexico, there were cacao. So it was chocolate. In China, it was tea. And then in Africa, I mean, I think most people don't, don't realize this. Here's another thing. I, mean, I think what I love about this book is it really explores like what where caffeine comes from. I think most people just take it for granted. The coffee bean, it's originally from Africa, but like, I think most people think when they think coffee, they think, oh, Juan Valdez,
1: South America.
0: That was a transplant.
1: It was a transplant, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Originally from Africa, and then you know spread through the Islamic world, and you know didn't even probably get into Europe until maybe the 1600s. I mean, you know, it was it was kind of a slow migration, and then eventually, of course, came over to the U.S. But yeah, the you know it, it's not native to many of what we consider the coffee-growing regions. Yes, it's it's the plant is is native to the African continent and has been transplanted worldwide. And, and of course, yeah, some of the, the coffees that we are most fond of are, are now grown in South and Central America.
0: And let's talk about coffee consumption, because that's, that's, for most of American history, that's been the primary caffeine delivery substance. So why, why did coffee take root in America compared to other cultures? Like even in Europe, I mean, that was like tea was sort of the place where they got their caffeine from. And how has coffee consumption changed throughout American history?
1: Well, yeah. In terms of how it took root, I don't know. There, there have been, there, there are some good historians who who've gotten into this, but it's certainly been an American beverage. You know, perceived as an American beverage for quite some time. You know, there are some people who even think that at the time of the Boston Tea Party, it was perceived as you know patriotic to not consume tea, but instead to consume coffee. So it it's it's been. At at least for a long time throughout the history of America, it's been it's been a, a popular beverage, increasing in popularity through the 1800s, and through the early 1900s, and and then really peaking around the World War II years, and that's one of the things that really fascinated me to learn, is that people you know are I guess our great grandparents' generation that era. They were consuming about twice as much coffee as we do now, and that's you know that was a real surprise to me. Well, what's what's going on there? Because like I mean, there's like a Starbucks in every corner now.
0: You can go to any convenience store get coffee. How is it that we're consuming less coffee than our great grandparents?
1: I know it's 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 really counterintuitive, and and you're right. Yeah, there it's it seems it seems like you can't you know you can't throw a rock without hitting a coffee shop or i, I guess one way of looking at it is we're we're sort of consuming coffee more conspicuously now we're making a bigger deal out of it we're paying more for it but in in the era that i'm talking about when people were drinking something like 53 gallons of coffee a year per capita There was probably like just a coffee machine going in the break room. You know, there was was a coffee pot or a percolator probably at the time just cranking in your house all the time. People were just sort of habitually, routinely consuming cups of coffee. And eventually what happened is uh, coffee got displaced by other beverages that are more popular. And one of those beverages,
0: and you talk about this, the rise of soda pop and caffeinated soda drinks.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a huge. You know, I think that would be the one that that you would say really, if if you look at the 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 graph of where of how coffee has declined and how sodas, Coke, etc., have grown, that they, they pretty much, you know, you you can you can see that one is replacing the other, and the the lines crossed probably around the early seventies, and that you know that that's. A big part of it is we're we're consuming a lot more Coca-Cola, or a lot more soda in general, than we did in you know the late 40s, early 50s, and and that in in part displaced coffee drinking. And and you know to be clear, there there's been a, a some something of a rebound, like over the last 15, 20 years, during this this golden age of coffee that we're talking about, you know, with the Starbucks on every corner. Certainly, I think. Per capita, our our coffee consumption has increased somewhat, but still we're we're you know we're pikers compared to what people were doing in the 40s and 50s. And imagine the coffee
0: in the 40s and 50s wasn't that great. They weren't doing like these exotic roasts. It was just like all right, you got Folgers instant coffee. There you go.
1: Yeah, and I I think to our palates today it probably wouldn't have been good at all. And you know, the coffee beans were probably and I've talked to a few people about this. There there you could probably get some really good coffees back then. But part of it has to do with how how it's processed. I mean, yeah, like if you if you were getting the big can of Maxwell House or Folgers, that you know, just a commercial blend, it would be roasted far away from you, long before you consumed it, ground, put in a can, and then you know, it may be weeks, months before you even crack the can. And so, yeah, the the coffee wouldn't have even a, even if even if it was a great bean that was being roasted, it's not going to taste the same as a good bean that you're that was freshly roasted and you, that you ground just before you consumed it. And additionally, you know people were percolating coffee and you know some people like percolating percolator coffee. I've given given it a hard time before and people have rushed to its defense. But it it overextracts. It tends to overextract the flavors. And so th- this would be like if if you're if you're using a cone filter, you know, and 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 after you, you've put the right amount of coffee through. You think, oh, I'm not going to put any more coffee in. I'm just going to like try to get that last bit out of there. And it kind of has this like funky, stale flavor. I, I think that that's part of what Percolators
0: did. All right, so coffee was the primary source of caffeine for Americans for a long time. But then starting in the late 19th century, coffee began to have a competitor in the form of caffeinated sodas like Coca-Cola. What I think is interesting is when soda, caffeinated soda first came out on the scene, the temperance movement, for example, touted it as a healthier alternative to alcohol and really sung its praises. But eventually, drinks like Coke and other caffeinated sodas, they came in for some criticism for their caffeine content. And I, what's interesting is that coffee, even though it had caffeine, didn't get the same amount of criticism as caffeinated soda. What was going on there?
1: Yeah, well, so... Coke went through an interesting evolution. You know, it it was first launched as like a a patent medicine with with wine, and you know a little bit of cocaine. You know, I I think it would have been a a pretty powerful beverage for most of us. But then eventually it became a temperance beverage. I mean, it was actually marketed that way, and it it was mostly then you know sugar or you know sweetness and caffeine. And what happened was in the early 1900s. People were beginning to be concerned about the caffeine in the product and just about the product in general and about the fact that it might be addictive and that it might be marketed to kids. And there was a a hard-charging regulator in the Bureau of Chemistry, which was basically the precursor to the FDA. And he basically challenged Coca-Cola in a court case over their use of caffeine and said it was an adulterated substance, that it was marketed to children, that it was addictive. And so that was like one of the early regulatory challenges to cocaine. To sorry, not to cocaine, to uh, to Coca-Cola and to so, the soda industry.
0: And as you highlight in the book, I didn't know this, but like the early Coca-Colas, they had the
1: same amount of caffeine as like a modern-day Red Bull. That surprised me too. Yeah, and I was glad there were some good statistics that I could mine uh, to find that. And that that all came out of this court case because they they were able to, you know, detail the, the constituents of the early Coca-Cola. Yeah, so it it had more caffeine and and the way I look at it is Coca-Cola invented the energy drink, you know, something like 80 years before Red Bull did. As a result of the court case, and and I've I've scoured Coca-Cola's archives and every every other historical account I can find. So I I don't know. I've never heard Coca-Cola say that this is what we did. But sometime during that court case, it appears that they reduced the caffeine content, and that it was probably further further reduced through the 1930s. So that original sort of energy drink Coke that was that would have been very much akin to a modern Red Bull was pretty much gone by at least the 20s or 30s. And something you highlight too is that even
0: then, like Coca-Cola and some of the other soda manufacturers, they understood... I mean, it sounded kind of like some of like the tobacco stuff that we saw in the 80s and 90s, where the pop makers... Like they'd say the caffeine was there just for flavor, but like they knew that it actually was a stimulant and kind of addicted people, but they didn't want to say that because then it would, you know, they'd have to like sort of market it as a drug. Basically,
1: I I think that's the case, and I and I think you know to their credit, I mean one one of the arguments at that time is what would you do next? Regulate coffee, and the argument, of course, and it's a valid argument. Coffee has more caffeine than this beverage, so why would it be fair? to regulate Coca-Cola and not coffee. But I think that's been a question, you know, through the years. And every time the regulatory battles heat up again, and this happened in the 1980s, it happened, you know, more recently with energy drinks. The question is this, is to what degree does caffeine, the drug, drive the consumption, you know, the, the, the purchase pattern of these products, of sodas and of energy drinks? And it's a question that I, I don't think has been adequately resolved. You know, even today, but you
0: do highlight research where they've done studies on that, where they'll give people like a, a, a soda that has caffeine and not caffeine in it. They don't tell what was, but like people seem to be drawn to the beverage with caffeine in it.
1: Yeah, it it, it increases. Uh, you know, the term is, is liking. It it increases. You know, the, the liking of the product. There, there's another term of reinforcement. So you know, the caffeine reinforces the purchase of of the product. So. In other words, if you if if you reach for a soda that's caffeinated, you're going to tend to like it, and you'll be more inclined to reach for it next time than for an uncaffeinated product. And I th- I think you know the social science again, or or the, or the science of the, the metabolic science. We we need more of that, and it would be good to see more of that. But I, I think something that we overlook is the, is the market has spoken on this. I mean, eight of the top ten selling sodas are caffeinated. If you want to sell a beverage in America and you want it to be, or you know, all over the world, and you want it to be successful, I think you know, adding caffeine is is, is a pretty sure bet.
0: Yeah, it's hard to find Postum these days. You can't really find that stuff anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, or even you know, caffeine-free Coke. And so you know, some people do like Sprite, and and some people like Fanta. But you know, aside from that, you know, the the Colas, the Diet Cokes, uh, Mountain Dew, Diet Mountain Dew, all all of the top sellers. You know, Dr Pepper. They're all caffeinated.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So soda pop, caffeinated soda beverages, they overtook coffee consumption for the the source of caffeine in like the 70s. But caffeinated soda has been overcome by energy drinks. This is like something that started like in the 90s. Let's talk about the history because this is really interesting. When did energy drinks start taking off? Like this idea that there's a drink that's just designed for energy. Like coffee, and Coke, they might have been marketed as a sort of a pick me up, but they never said this will give you energy. What is this idea that you have a drink just for energy?
1: Yeah, I would say the late 90s for sure, early 2000s, this is this starting to become a trend. And, you know, 2005 from there on, I would say Red Bull was really, really starting to take off. And, and you're right. It's it's a different thing. It's it's not just saying, oh, you know, this is a refreshing beverage or this is a stimulating beverage. It's like, you know, here, have this. It'll give you energy. It was, it was a brazen, very direct marketing, you know, of the caffeine of 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 the stimulating effect of the drink, and it was something new at the time.
0: No, I know from my own personal experience. Like 2000, that year 2000, I was a senior in high school. And I remember that's kind of when Red Bull came out. I think Red Bull came out in the late 90s. But I started, before my football games, I would get two Red Bulls. One was to drink before the, the game, and the other was to drink at halftime. And that was like the first time ever Like I consumed a beverage just for performance. Before, I would drink Coke and Mountain Dew because it just tasted good. But here I was, you know, 17 years old, buying a drink so it could enhance my
1: performance. Wow, that's you're an early adopter, really, because a lot of people had were not yet consuming energy drinks at the time. And what's interesting about these energy
0: drinks is that in the beginning, they often downplayed the caffeine in their products, and instead they promoted like the other ingredients, like the guarana or what are the the other weird supplements they have in there. Why did they downplay the caffeine?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really important point. I, I think they downplayed the caffeine because the the Regulatory framework had been fraught. It had never been resolved very much. I mean, uh, FDA basically had considered caffeine generally recognized as safe. That's one of their their terms when it was used in cola type beverages. So it was for very specific uses. And I think what Red Bull did was they kind of nudged the door open. They're like, Hey, what if we you know marketed this highly or or more caffeinated beverage and just see what happens and it became wildly successful and that's you know then other energy drink manufacturers came in behind it and they're like well you know nobody has stopped red bull the fda hasn't done anything i guess this must be okay and then gradually you have seen this evolution where you know caffeine was not really talked about yeah it was you know taurine or whatever all these other products when you know caffeine is really the the so called energy product in any of these the energy ingredient in any of these drinks but more recently, you have seen bottlers more brazenly or more openly. I'd say using the word caffeine on their products. And this is sort of
0: interesting. Uh, this I, the energy drinks allows you allows people to see the weird, murky world of food and drug regulation, because in a lot of in the early days, a lot of these energy drinks they wouldn't put the caffeine content like on the the thing itself. Instead, they say this is like there's a proprietary energy blend. And you had no clue like how much caffeine you were getting in your, you know, energy shot. And it's because they were marketing themselves as a supplement, and because they marketed themselves as a supplement, there was less stringent standards if, if they had marketed themselves as a beverage, a drink.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And FDA did issue some guidance on that, basically, you know, saying if something's consumed like a beverage, you know, then it should be marketed as a beverage. I mean. Yeah, you know, if it's if it's a twelve ounce energy drink and it's in the cooler, you know, next to the sodas, is that really a supplement or or is it essentially a more caffeinated soda? You know, and I I think FDA came down on the side of the ladder. So, yeah, that was that was one big change, and you are seeing increasingly, I, I would say, you're seeing improved caffeine labeling. I'd, it still leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, you still need, virtually need a magnifying glass in some cases to see how much caffeine is in a product. But at least, you know, if if you're looking for it, you can usually find it. One of the things that's really interesting is during the Super Bowl this year, Coca-Cola launched a new, in the U.S., they've launched it elsewhere earlier, a new drink called Coca-Cola Energy. I mean, you know, Very distinctly, it's an energy drink and it's got, you know, the Coca Cola brand on it. So, this is something that they hadn't really done before. They had purchased a share in Monster and they had a distribution deal. So, you know, Coca Cola was still sort of keeping the energy drink thing at arm's length. But now they've got this Coca Cola energy and on the can it says Guarana B vitamins caffeine. I mean, right in the front. So it's an example of how you know Coca-Cola has tiptoed around to to this to embracing energy and and notably uh, this has you know the the pretty much the same caffeine concentration as their 1909 beverage although now it's coming in you know a 12 ounce can so it has I don't know 118 milligrams it's it's almost the exact shape of a can and caffeine content of a Red Bull but it all went full circle. It all went full circle. Uh, yeah, that's my point, and and uh, and I think uh, you know to your point about people, you know, bottlers not using the term caffeine. I, I think they're coming around to it, and I think Coca-Cola understands the value now of touting caffeine.
0: All right, so let's talk about you know figuring out how much caffeine you consume on a daily basis. I remember a couple of years ago I sat down to think about you know how much caffeine I consume on a daily basis, and I was like. Gobsmacked! Like I was actually, I was consuming more than I thought I was. So why is it so hard for people to know how much caffeine they're consuming
1: on a on a daily basis? And this is something that I became endlessly fascinated with. It's very difficult. It's very difficult for a couple of reasons. One, because we consume caffeine often in you know many different products throughout the day. So many of us drink coffee in the morning. What I came to realize, a lot of people, a very common pattern, is to have coffee in the morning and then, you know, an energy drink or soda, either at mid-morning or mid-afternoon or with lunch. And so, yeah, there's there's a number of different ways that you can get your caffeine. Another challenge is that, you know, particularly with coffee, the caffeine content can vary widely. I mean, so some people people like to say, you know, how much coffee do you drink? And people say, I drink a cup a day. Well, that, you know, that's an absolutely worthless metric. I mean, a cup could be a five-ounce weak cup that could have, you know, 80 milligrams of coffee, or it could be, you know, like a 16-ounce cup from Starbucks that might have 325 milligrams of coffee. So there's, there's just a, a tremendous variation. And then, you know, on top of this, I think we we don't really think of caffeine in terms of milligrams. We don't really, you know, if, if someone says, how much caffeine do you consume? You say, well, you know, I drink a soda or, you know, I drink a cup of coffee, but you don't say, well... You know, I I drink 200 to 300 milligrams, but I think you really kind of do have to total up the milligrams uh, as you probably did when when you were trying to understand your own caffeine consumption in order to get a handle on how much you're consuming. And do we have any like a rough idea, like the average amount of caffeine people are consuming on a daily basis? I'd have to say, you know, average for coffee drinkers, they're they're probably in the range of of 250 to 300 milligrams. That's that that would be my guess. And and most people in the U.S. are consuming coffee regularly. So, you know, coffee remains, and this is a weird thing to understand, coffee remains our primary source of caffeine. We're consuming more caffeine from coffee than from any other beverage, but by ounces, you know, by by actually, you know, drinks daily, we're consuming more soda pop. But the soda, it has less caffeine. So we're, by volume, we're consuming more soft drinks, but by caffeine, we're still getting most of our caffeine from coffee. Gotcha. And
0: like, what's the recommended amount from
1: health experts on like what is okay caffeine consumption for an average person? And here too, this is this is a, an area that's kind of soft, but most people suggest not going above four hundred milligrams. and this is going to vary a lot from person to person because some people are just much more caffeine sensitive than others. And but you know, 400 milligrams seems to be sort of a level that most people are saying. Yeah, you know, up to 400 milligrams you're okay. Beyond that, you know, maybe back off.
0: Well, that's an interesting point. Some people, there's a genetic component to caffeine. Some people process caffeine a lot faster than other people, so they could drink a cup of coffee and it like right before bed, and then go right to sleep.
1: Wouldn't affect them. Another person does the same thing, and they would be up all night. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's it's highly variable. And certainly seems to be genetic, which, which is to say, you know, like I know of a family of people and they're all this way that they that they'll they'll drink a pot of coffee with dinner, you know, and then just trundle off to bed. But yeah, uh, some people metabolize caffeine quickly, some people metabolize it slowly. And some people are really on the low end of, you know, are really quite sensitive to caffeine. And and this is something that I I kind of didn't, I, I don't know. I think I discounted it un, until I did the research for the book. But even what might be like a, a very small amount, the trace amount that's left in a cup of decaf, maybe twelve milligrams of caffeine, that could be enough for someone who's very caffeine sensitive to really make them feel you know uncomfortable, that that, that they would really get a boost out of that. So yeah, we our individual reactions to, to caffeine varies dramatically. So you
0: in the part of the book I, I thought was really interesting, you talk about different groups of people researching and exploring how caffeine can be used to enhance performance. You talk about the military. The military is basically putting caffeine in everything, uh, surprising stuff, like even food, they're putting caffeine in. But the thing that I'd like to focus on is sports, because I think that's where most people, if they're athletic in any way, they, they think it's sort of natural now. It's like, well, you know, if I need a boost, I have a little bit of caffeine before I do my workout to kind of give me that extra pep. What does the research say about Caffeine and how it enhances athletic performance.
1: Well, it it backs up that that perception you're talking about, the idea that yeah, you know, if if I want to if I want to do well or or as you would have in high school during football, if I want to do well, I might do a little better caffeinated. And it, it looks like the optimal dose for most people would be like three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilo of body weight, and this could be a fair amount for you know a bigger person. You know, maybe 300 milligrams of, of caffeine, or, you know, say a couple of strong 12 ounce cups of coffee, if that's the way you wanted to take it before your athletic event. I, I think the more notable thing about this is that for most athletic events, and most of the research has been on endurance events, but say if you were going to run an hour race, caffeine versus a placebo would probably improve your time between 1% to 3% in that race. And that's, I mean, That's obviously a winning margin in in many athletic events, and that's why you're seeing so many athletic specific products, you know, gels and beverages and things for people to to consume while they're doing, you know, triathlons, et cetera.
0: I was surprised the amount of like caffeine you need, the dosage for caffeine. So I think the example the example you gave in your book was an 80 kilo athlete, which is about 176 pounds. So if you want to take six milligrams per kilogram, that would be 480 milligrams of caffeine, which is like double what, like the average, and that's like at one time, like you consume that once and then do your thing. I mean, if you weigh 200 pounds, I mean, that's going to be insane. Like how much caffeine you got to back to get, you know, get that effect.
1: That is, and that's the high end, but you're still going to get a good effect. I think in the three to five, milligram per kilo range so but yeah that is to say yeah that would that would be a huge amount and and here you know the researchers i i spoke with talked about this you have to weigh the the benefits and possibly the costs. If if you're actually getting you know like stressed and anxious or having some like gi like stomach upset from the caffeine you're consuming mm-hmm. obviously you know that's too much and that's gonna it's it's gonna eliminate any benefit you might have gotten from the caffeine but, you know, the, the, the short answer is, yeah, some caffeine and probably a moderate dose will improve for most people their athletic performance. And so what is the, what's the
0: regulations of so caffeine? So if it enhances your performance, most drugs that enhance performance in athletics, I'm talking about the Olympic stuff, football, like those are banned or they're, they're restricted somehow. Why isn't caffeine, why hasn't that been regulated
1: in sports? And this too is is to me quite fascinating. It, the reason is that the same dosage, the same, you know, therapeutic dosage that would, that would give you an athletic advantage is very much in the range of the average American's daily consumption. So, you know, if you consider that, it's basically saying, okay, most people are consuming caffeine daily, you know, maybe 300 milligrams, but for an athletic event, you can't do that. And so I think unlike, you know, Testosterone or any any other sort of whatever you might use as to to dope with, I think caffeine is is really quite in a category by itself that that makes its regulation fraught.
0: Yeah, and as you said earlier, it's going to affect people differently. So someone might boost the performance a lot, and someone could take that same amount of caffeine and not have any performance enhancement.
1: That's true. Yeah, and and so it's going to vary, and and I think most you know most professional or high end amateur athletes have figured out their caffeine strategy. And I, I think this has changed an awful lot over the last 30 years. You know, I used to race bikes in the 80s and and people had a sense that, you know, if you had a strong, like a, a short, strong cup of coffee at some point, you know, that that might help you in a race or people would say, oh, I, I drink Coke or I drink Mountain Dew. But I think people are much, much more, have, have a much more finely tuned sense of both what caffeine does, when it does, when it does help them, and how best to consume it during a race? than you know, even that recently.
0: Yeah, I loved how you talk, you talked to some of these high performance athletes and how they would they were very systematic about their caffeine. They'd have something before, and then along the race, they'd have a gel that they would you know throw back and get that. So they they had it timed perfectly and when they were going to do this.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so, I, and 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 I think it it, it makes sense. I mean, because these are the same people who are very conscientious about everything that they're eating on race day and and in the days prior. So why not caffeine? And and I think a lot of people find that unseemly because, you know, there there is at least, I don't know, sort of a, a moral distinction between, uh, yeah, maybe they're consuming the same amount of caffeine you and I would be if we we're at a coffee shop, but they're doing it specifically to enhance their performance. And, you know, that does sort of it, it 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 it's an ethical challenge, but I think for most people they're they're kind of okay with that.
0: All right, so for basic you know weekend warrior athletes, if you're doing a five k or you know fifteen k or you and I, I've also seen research that caffeine can act and can help with weightlifting too, strength training. It actually increases performance there. You're, you're looking at about three milligrams per kilogram of body weight, and the high end would be like eight or six kilograms.
1: Yeah, I would say six. You probably wouldn't want to go beyond six, but yeah. Something like that, and uh, and you you would want to consume it in in a way that it wasn't going to you know that it wasn't going to interfere with your performance in any other way. I mean, obviously, you're not going to stand there, at, you know, the beginning of a 10k and you know have have a big cup of Starbucks probably, but you know, maybe an hour before to have a strong cup of coffee would probably be be quite helpful.
0: All right, so we know that caffeine helps us not feel tired. It also just makes us feel good generally after you have some.
1: Were there some surprising benefits of caffeine you came across as you researched this book? There are. There's some unusual ones. And again, you know, I I mentioned some of these with trepidation because you need, I, I think in all cases we need more research. There are some associations with a reduced risk of suicide. There's a suggestion that they that people who consume more caffeine have a lower incidence of basal cell skin cancers. Certainly, caffeinated coffee is associated with lower risk of diabetes, and may be associated with a decreased incidence of Parkinson's disease. And I mean, coffee itself—it, you know, there's there's been more research recently. You know, coffee drinking, caffeinated coffee drinking, is actually associated now with with a you know reduced risk of mortality. People who consume caffeinated coffee have a decreased risk of dying at any particular later age. Uh, even that's not quite right. <laughs> right, yeah, no. So, no. You're not trying to say that, oh, if you drink coffee, you're less of a chance of dying. No. Decreases, but uh, yeah. epidemiological studies show a decreased risk of mortality associated with people who are drinking caffeinated coffee. And there we have to be careful, because we don't know if it's the caffeine or another constituent in the coffee, and it may likely, or it may very probably be another constituent in the coffee. It might be polyphenols, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it all of these health benefits or associations with consuming caffeinated coffee are, are should go a long way towards easing people's worries if they think they're drinking too much.
0: Yeah, I think drinking full sugar monsters that'll probably give you diabetes and decrease. It's not the ca- <laughs> like the caffeine like that would be overridden by the sugar consumption.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and and that's that's sort of the other end of the scale. You you uh, there there seems to be no health risk associated with consuming caffeinated coffee or tea, and there might even be some health benefits, but we know there's you know, cut and dried health risks with consuming uh, full sugar sodas and energy drinks.
0: Well, let's talk about the downsides of caffeine. We're we talking, okay, it can help with athletic performance, gives you a boost when you're feeling kind of sluggish. What are the downsides of caffeine?
1: Well, the, the two best known ones, and, and I think most people are familiar with this, is it can disrupt your sleep and uh and i i guess a, a slightly lesser known one is it can increase anxiety so you know the sleep thing i mean i think a lot we we talked about this before a lot of people there are some people who can consume caffeine and and just sleep like babies but for uh, so a lot of people suffer from insomnia and they consume caffeine daily and there's certainly some subset of that group that would find that if they stopped or reduced their caffeine consumption they would sleep better
0: yeah, because like the caffeine, like the half life of caffeine is like four to five hours, so it stays in your system for at least five hours, something like that.
1: Yeah, it's going to be in your system for quite some time, and and for people who are more sensitive, I mean, this is really surprising. But even if if their sleep is not acutely disrupted, they may have be sleeping lighter uh, at night, and. So this isn't going to be for everyone, but th- this is one of the surprising things that I found in in talking to people is, you know, I'd say, do you consume caffeine daily? Yeah. Do you sleep well? No, I, I suffer from insomnia. Have you ever tried reducing or eliminating caffeine? Well, no. And and I think it's it's almost like saying, well, I'd I'd rather be a caffeine consumer and an insomniac. But it's not going to help everybody to reduce their their caffeine consumption. But I think if you really do suffer from if, if you really would like to sleep better, it's worth experimenting with with reducing your caffeine consumption. All right, so sleep insomnia, one of the big downsides. What's the other big downside? Uh, increasing anxiety, anger, what what do you think? I think increased anxiety is a big one and and little disgust. You know, again, if if you sort of look at the overlap of people who experience anxiety, you know, either clinical or or subclinical and the people who consume caffeine just because most of us consume caffeine, you know, there's a lot of overlap. And I certainly talked to a couple of people in in my reporting and later when the book came out who had been anxious, had suffered from anxiety, but had never had anyone suggest that they reduce caffeine and did reduce caffeine and found that they felt better. So, you know, again, it probably wouldn't help everyone and it's, it's, it's not a cure-all to quit caffeine, but I would say if you're someone who suffers from anxiety and you consume caffeine regularly, it would be worth just experimenting. You know, just just trying to see what what your symptoms are like if you decrease caffeine or, or eliminate it entirely. What is there any research on like what caffeine does with our thinking? Because I, th- I mean, I've know I sort of intuitively
0: when I've got a big project, I got to do some hard thinking. I think, well, I got to have a little bit of caffeine. It'll help me focus. Uh, is there anything to that sort of natural incl-
1: inclination that I have? yeah, well, I think the 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 better research has been on the things that are easy easier to to quantify, like reaction time, you know, and word associations. But yeah, i think I think most of us feel intuitively that caffeine can sort of make your your the wheels of your brain spin a little faster. And before we move on from health risks, uh, it's it's worth noting that the the I, the other group that should pay attention to this is people who are either uh, pregnant or wanting to become pregnant. And who should, who are advised to reduce their ca- caffeine consumption? A lot of people say to 200 milligrams or below daily. And this this is because of an association between higher amounts of caffeine and the possibility of miscarriage and of of babies that are lower uh, lower weight at birth. So, um, so if you're if you if you're hoping to become pregnant or if you are pregnant, it's it's worth moderating your caffeine consumption at least.
0: So a lot of people you talk about, you just mentioned someone who has a hard time sleeping, you say, Hey, why don't you give up your coffee and see what that does? People are like, Oh, no, I, I can't do that. So this idea that, you know, either caffeine's it's it's a habit or it's an addiction. What does the research say about that?
1: I think, and and I hate to say this because I it's it's really it feels like being a killjoy, but I think you have to consider it an addictive substance. I, I think one of my sources put it best. I think he he characterized it as mildly addictive, and I think that's the best way to look at it because it does have the hallmarks of an addictive substance. You know, uh, people feel good when they consume caffeine. They feel lousy when they don't consume caffeine. Your your tolerance increases to it somewhat as you consume it, and then for many of us, if you stop abruptly consuming caffeine, then you're going to have withdrawal symptoms. So. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, hard, it's hard not to say it's addictive. I, I think part of the reason people hate that term for this is because it's clearly not an addiction with all of the sort of socially negative components of, of say, opiate addiction. But, you know, in terms of the addictive pattern, I, I think it's all there with caffeine. What are the withdrawal symptoms whenever you decide to quit caffeine cold turkey? the best known one is is a headache a, a caffeine headache and that that often will come on on like the second day or or maybe even late on the first day of of you know a cold turkey withdrawal but you know sort of unpleasantness edginess and even muscle aches and pains flu-like muscle aches and pains. But I, I think the best known one is is the the classic sort of caffeine headache. And that, what's interesting there, what's causing that,
0: it's because when you consume caffeine, it restricts blood flow to your brain. And then once you stop, like things relax a bit and you're just having like this gush of blood go to your brain and it just, it hurts when that happens.
1: Yeah, and and this is part of the reason that a lot of, you know, et cetera, and Hanison headache compounds combine caffeine with analgesics. And additionally, there are some some well known prescription migraine medications that also include caffeine. And I'm
0: curious, how did your caffeine consumption change after you researched and wrote this book?
1: Not dramatically, but I I, I will say I use caffeine more strategically. I, I think I have a, a greater awareness of of its sort of more subtle effects. So while I I never was someone who who consumed caffeine late into the evening, I think I cut off a little bit earlier now. And just, I'd say I generally moderated my consumption. I still, you know, I still consume a lot of caffeine in the form of coffee, probably, you know, 300, 350 milligrams a day. So that would be like, you know, 24 ounces of good, strong coffee. But I I would say I, I probably use it a little more strategically now. So,
0: yeah, maybe that's the advice, the takeaway there. Don't, you don't have to necessarily quit caffeine, but be smart about it.
1: Yeah. I'd say be smart, be smart about it. Be, be aware of, of your cam- caffeine consumption and be aware yeah it's it's a drug you know and and because it is a drug and it is affecting you in uh, multiple ways it it's just it just makes sense to pay attention to it
0: well murray this has been a great conversation where can people go to learn more about the book and your work
1: well i've got a website just murraycarpenter.com and the the book is available on um you know pretty much from your local bookstore or anywhere else and i have another book coming out in a year which is specific to Coca-Cola and health. So you can look for that as well. Fantastic. Well, Murray Carpenter, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate your
0: interest. My guest today is Murray Carpenter. He's the author of the book, Caffeinated. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, murraycarpenter.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash caffeinated. You can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the a1 podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever podcast platform you use. And if you've done that already, Thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you all to listen to the AWIM podcast and put what you've heard into action.